Hey everybody, do you like my new backdrop? It's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, we, we set up a green screen and uh, this, is, this gives me an opportunity for a little bit of shameless self-promotion. Um, I don't know if I told you the story that uh, <laughs> when my first book came out <clears throat> 10 years ago, nine years ago, um, I, I really, you know, book signings and things like that, uh, you know, I just I really just don't, it's not my thing. And so I was moaning, complaining to this um, author friend <laughs> and he was great. He simply said, he said, just get over it. He said, there, there are times in life for shameless self-promotion. <laughs> so there's shameless self-promotion. I'll get back to that in just a little second. So um, yeah, so what we do on these sessions, on, the, on these uh, weekly gatherings, number 18 now, wow, is they're extremely informal, um, which is one reason I like them so much because I, I don't really have to prepare anything. Um, I'll have an idea if you're new to our little venture here. I'll launch a few comments around something that I might be thinking about. And then basically it's just, it's simply a way for us to hang out together. Um, so it's not merely questions, even though that seems to be the heart of what we do. It's also offerings. There's a lot of wisdom in this group, um, recommendations, challenges. It's just basically a way to hang out. And so we talked last week a little bit about the time thing. Um, we got, uh, as you might suspect, quite a variety of recommendations. One was don't change it, of course. The other one was, yes, please change it for the working people who can never really get to these things live. And so here's what we're going to try. We're just, you know, again, this whole thing is an emergent design work in progress. So let's just see how it goes. Is we'll do, we're gonna do one more weekend at, at one o'clock uh, next, Thursday. And then let's just see how it works. I want to alternate um, the Thursdays after that. So in other words, two weeks from today, we'll do it. At, and again, this is what we're talking about, either at 6 or 7 p.m. Uh, Mountain Standard Time. Then the week after that would be back to the one o'clock time. And then and we'll just see how it works for people, because obviously we're never going to make everybody happy all the time. But there are more and more people going back to work and they can't listen to this live. So we want to just try to honor as many people as we can. Um, I always start also with a, a little bit of housekeeping, uh, so to speak, and a few announcement things. Um, one is that we did post the, I think, really rich conversation that I had a couple of weeks ago with uh, Chris, Christopher Wallace. He's an amazing, really amazing uh, scholar, practitioner. I love these kind of trans-religious scholar practitioners. Um, we've had three of them so far um, in the network of our interviews. I, um, we had um, Zvi Ish Shalom. He is the Kaduma Jewish mystic uh, scholar practitioner. We had him about a year and a half ago. He's in this family of trans-religious, or you can, you can even say pre-religious traditions. Traditions that transcend or subsend any culture, any time. And the Kaduma, the primordial Torah, from the Jewish perspective, is definitely in that family. Then we have Ben Williams, who's a, a Sanskrit um, scholar, professor, um, really super cool guy. I interviewed him a couple months ago. He's another one of these amazing people in this kind of trans-religious approach from a kind of Shaiva, Nando Shaiva Tantra lineage. 
And then Chris Wallace is definitely in this group um, because the, the Kashmir Shaivism, which is just another way to talk about the broader spectrum of non-dual Shaiva Tantra, just like in my tradition of Buddhism, you know, the kind of trans-religious tradition, you could say, and sometimes it's actually called Sahajayana, the fourth yana, the fourth vehicle behind, beyond even the Vajrayana, is, is uh, the great perfection teachings, Dzogchen, which really in the family of these other amazing traditions really transcends religiosity altogether. And so uh, I really, I'm a big fan of Chris's work. The Tantra Illuminated Text is an amazing tome. And for anybody who wants to know, any student of Buddhism, especially Tantric Vajrayana Buddhism, anybody wants to know where our lineage comes from, what it derives from, this is a really helpful book. Because so much of what Vajrayana practitioners do really derives from, from non-dual Shaiva Tantra, from the Hindu Tantric traditions, which should be no surprise because Buddhism actually arose altogether as a kind of response um, to the developing uh, Brahmanical and then eventually Hindu traditions. So anyway, I had this really rich conversation, two hours with uh, Chris Wallace, author of Tantra Illuminated. And we mostly spoke about his second book um, called Recognition Sutras, which is very much in line with my understanding of um, Mahamudra, Dzogchen and the like. So anyway, we just posted that. Elizabeth Matisnamgyal, she's a dear friend of mine. I interviewed her. We'll post that probably in a week or so. Um, she's a, an amazing individual, author of two books, The Power of an Open Question and The Logic of Faith. We talked mostly about her first book, The Power of an Open Question, and the importance of proper inquiry. Um, how really the way you ask questions, the receptivity, the openness of mind, the openness of the questions themselves, is really instrumental in proper inquiry altogether. And so Elizabeth is, as you'll hear, she's a really beautiful human being and I, I had so much fun hanging out with her. So um, there's that. Um, my book came out, so here it is. It just, I just got this thing. I can't tell you how excited I am. Um, this thing has been really, it's been on the shelves. I mean, I, I finished this thing probably three years ago and through whatever pipeline um, issues and editorial issues and all that, it's finally out. And uh, I just got my copies. And so we're, there are a number of things around this. That's where the cover comes from. I just love this cover. I think it absolutely rocks. Sounds true, did a really beautiful job. Um, and so a couple of things about this puppy. Next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday at one o'clock, you know, free, um, Facebook Live event where I'll, I'll spend about an hour, half an hour talking about like why I wrote this book, blah, 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 and then questions about it. Um, and then what we're going to do, uh, I was inspired by uh, uh, some things that I'll actually share when I have the first session around this thing. I was inspired by some other authors and actually my own working with this book because um, this is by far the deepest dive thing that I've ever written. And I had so much fun writing it. Um, it really goes pretty deep. It's not an easy book. It's not for the faint of heart. And as I say in, in the early part of the book, this, this book may be hazardous to your egoic health. <laughs> um, and so when I read it, when I wrote it, and then continue, you know, as, as um, uh, William Zinzer writes in his 
beautiful book on writing well. He says, the essence of writing is rewriting. And so for anybody who's an author, you know this. The essence of writing is rewriting. So you're constantly rewriting, rewriting. And with this book, some of the material is so mind-bending. Um, the stuff, not, not the stuff that I came up with, but the stuff that I was drawing from the non-dual traditions, from um, the sciences, from cognitive neuroscience, from physics, from developmental psychology. I did a fair amount of research on this book. And um, it's in three sections. And the third section is a kind of a, the scientific backing behind seeing the world in this illusory way. That's the essence of the book. And as I was going through the stuff, um, I, I actually have to pause frequently to just digest the material because it was like, man, this is, you know, if you really wrap your mind around what these amazing scholars, scientists, mystics are saying, it's really revolutionary. It really is profound contemplation that can change the way you look at the world. And it did that for me. I mean, this book was a, a really transformative spiritual practice for me to just sit and, and work with these really deep reflections. And so what, what we're going to do, um, because of the depth um, of this book, is that uh, I think starting September 21st, we're gonna wait a little while for this book to get out there, we're going to launch a book study group um, that's going to last indefinitely, somewhat in the spirit, and a little bit inspired by what we're doing here, somewhat in the spirit of what we're doing with these um, hangout sessions where we'll go through the entire book, uh, line by line commentary, um, where I can share like, okay, what was the thinking behind this? Like even what, like where did this bloody title come from? This was not the original title. Um, so it, it's just a way to take a really deep collective look at the material that's in this book with a lot of time for Q and A and that sort of thing. So um, I'll say more about this. We're gonna post a link about it coming up, but I wanted to plant that seed that uh, it's a way to really unpack what this little volume is all about. So um, obviously a lot more coming up along those sorts of things. So um, we haven't done our one breath meditation session in a while. So I, I want to pause for a second. We, we launched this program 18 weeks ago, concentrating on a couple of these kind of really potent so-called emergency meditations. And um, I've been a little bit remiss and actually practicing them with you. So let's do our one breath meditation session, literally for one breath, one inhalation, one exhalation, we bring our awareness as fully as we can into the natural movement of our breathing and the very kind of presence of our bodies, just as a way to center, gather and collect. So here we go, or here we don't go. <laughs> That's it. Meditation session for the day, done. Great way, it's like a bardo practice, a gap practice, to take a little sip of space, insert a little bit of space, especially in situations that are dense, contracted, potentially explosive. So um, I'm gonna say just a couple little things and then as usual, we'll open it up to all of you. We have some written questions and then, you know, 
the real delight for me is the actual interchange with you all. So I started talking a little bit last week about this uh, really provocative notion or fact, actually it's not a notion, it's a fact, that uh, perception is creation. <clears throat> perception is creation. That in, in a really a instant, the blink of an eye, quite literally, you um, enact, you don't create, you know, that's called solipsism. That's the error that it's, solipsism is, is the ultimate narcissism, ultimate self-ism etymologically. Um, that you know you somehow create this reality. That's a new age fallacious notion. Maybe parenthetically you'll do that in a dream. Dreams are largely solipsistic. But the idea here that's so compelling and um, it's interesting because a, a large part of the third part of, the, of this book, Dreams of Light is exactly about this type of thing where they're quite literally in the blink of an eye, we enact, we, we co-create, we bring forth this world. And this has so many tremendous implications, repercussions that you know, you're not the victim of a cold, uncaring, harsh world. You're largely, we're largely victims of our own projections, imputations, the versions that we create our world to be. And so, um, Literally, every time you open your eyes, a, a two-dimensional um, kind of framework of data, perceptual data, um, hits your eye. That uh, two-dimensional data is, first of all, inverted, flipped upside down, transmitted into uh, electrochemical signals, sent through the optic nerve to a central, re central relay station in the middle of your brain called the lateral geniculate nucleus. This is connected to the cortical regions, neocortical regions, limbic system, all these other disparate uh, arenas in the brain. And then um, up to uh, 0.5 seconds, that's a half second, which is a tremendous amount of time neurologically. All the sensory data is commingled with all these other aspects of our history, our beliefs, our fears, our hopes, our enculturations. All this data is commingled, fired back then to the occipital cortex, um, which constitutes over a third of the brain. It's amazing how much processing power is devoted to vision. And then we say something like, well, I see. Well, what is it that we're actually seeing? You know, estimates are that only 20% of what we actually receive as information data from the so-called external world, which is not really external at all, only 20% actually is registered at the occipital cortex. The other 80% comes from all these different parts of your brain and your history. And so we don't see the world the way it is. We don't see the way things, the way things really are. We see things the way they are. And so this idea of, of perception and creation is, is an enormous one. I did promise I was gonna say a little bit about non-contextual realism. Um, and I'm just going to say a very little bit about this because I actually want to talk for five minutes about something else, something I think more practical, even though on a very deep level, this is amazingly practical. But, but non-conceptual realism is, is a very loaded philosophical term that basically explores um, 
how to say it? The, I mean, the, the most, one of the most common examples is, does the moon exist when you don't look at it? What happens to the moon when you're actually not looking at it? And, and as I mentioned last week, this is where we have to make this really important distinction between what's called um, phenomenal versus relational um, experience, that there is something out there. We, we don't create that. We, we co-create it with every other vast kind of nexus of causes and conditions in this world. But what we do create is, is the phenomenal reality. We create, we paint our experience of, of the moon. And so I actually, I'm going to defer a, a little bit deeper dive into this because I wanted to talk just a little bit more um, about something that's been on my mind a lot last couple of weeks, and especially this week. And this again, this is a, a beautifully rich topic that um, especially those of you who are students of the Shambhala tradition may have something to offer around this, which is this really foundational um, approach. And so again, parenthet parenthetical thing, I am gonna come back like I promised and say a little bit more about non-contextual realism, but that's a little nerdy. And of course I'm a nerd, so I love this stuff, but I wanted to set that on the side for just a second and talk a little bit about um, this foundational tenet called basic goodness. And I want to do this for uh, one reason in particular, <clears throat> because not only is this idea of basic goodness such a foundational core of the Shambhala tradition, <clears throat> it's a description of reality um, using that language. And it's so foundational that, that you, you know, I think one could argue quite compellingly, I believe, that it's the essence of the whole um, Shambhala tradition, and as it's, that is somewhat derivative of the Buddhist tradition, it's actually the heart of the Buddhist teachings altogether, which in that language is referred to as Buddha nature. The idea that fundamentally the world, if it's left alone, and this is not completely disconnected from this non-contextual realism, which is why one reason I'm pinging it in, if the world is simply left alone properly, and that's the art of meditation, is in fact leaving things alone properly, this world is, is fundamentally divine. And this ties into what I was saying at the outset with these other trans-religious traditions, because the Kaduma tradition says exactly the same thing. In the Nandu Shaiva teachings, that tradition, they talk about reality as the divine goddess. And so it's not just the Tibetan voice that is in this chorus proclaiming that if the world is seen properly, it's perfectly pure, literally, translation of the great completions of Chen. It's divine. It's in, in uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's famous terminology, basically good. And so that in itself is, is a really fantastically profound radical proclamation from the West. But what I want to emphasize on this that I've been working with a lot, and I'd love to hear what some of the Shambhala people that are listening to might have to say around this, is that not only is this view of basic goodness a view of reality, it's also a praxis. In other words, it's, it's, to me, it's also a practice. Basic goodness is a practice. And what I mean by this, and this is what, this is what became really personal to me um, over these last couple of weeks, is it's incredibly easy right now. Maybe, maybe this is confession you know, to you all. It's incredibly easy right now to just be really irritated, right? There's, 
there's so much to complain about. Um, it's, it's really, it's like, it's unbelievable. It's a, a real suck fest. And what I have noticed is this increased default that I'm now, I'm turning into a practice. And this is what I want to talk to you about. It's very easy for me to capitulate to a non-sacred view of things, to just find the badness, to find the wrongness. And so for me, what I've done lately that's been really helpful is I'm, I'm making it actually, um, I'm transforming basic goodness into an actual practice. And by this, what I mean is that we always have a choice. We can either look for, in fact, William James, I love this guy to death, you know, the father of American psychology, an amazing philosopher. I'm a really big fan of this guy's work. Incredibly um, forward thinking philosopher, thinker, deep spiritual individual, actually. He once said very beautifully that reality is what you attend to. Reality is what you attend to. And so if I find myself just attending to all this negativity, um, which just, you know, if kind of feeds the egoic agenda, you know, it's just so easy to complain and criticize and bitch and moan, then that becomes my worldview. You know, I'm, I'm actually kind of defaulting into this um, view of basic badness. And so what I've been doing is in conjunction with this notion of contraction, Every time I contract into complaint, every time I contract into gossip, criticism, which if I'm honest with myself happens a lot more than I would like, I realize on the spot right there, I have a choice. I can continue to attend to the negative, develop that storyline, that narrative, and therefore just live in a really increasingly contracted and really gripey world. Or I, I can say, um, you know, I don't really need to go there. Let's practice basic goodness. Where's the goodness in this neighbor whose dog always, you know, relieves himself in my yard? Where's the goodness in, in this politician that I, I can't, I can hardly even look at? Where's the goodness in, in these situations that are actually there? They're inherent there. They actually are there. Why can't I direct my lens towards that, nurture that, cultivate that, open to that? And then from that kind of stance of receptivity, openness, accommodation, what I have found that then that allow, it certainly softens my relationship to the world. I, I find myself not nearly as gripey and irritable and, and kind of bitchy as I was. Um, I'm actually able to, to now use these contractions that, that otherwise would just almost force me into a complaint, critical narrative. I know I feel that contraction and I go, wait a second, you don't have to go there. You know, don't attend to that. Don't make that your reality. Attend to the goodness. And then when you attend to the goodness, isn't it interesting? Then the world magically just becomes more good because you're seeing more of what it is. And, and I have to interject right away, this does not mean that there aren't so-called bad things out there. This does not in any way mean that there isn't a reality, a, a conventional reality that in fact needs to be improved, needs to be worked on. That's not at all what's being said here. This is a near enemy of this type of view. This, oh, it's all love and light. It's all perfectly pure. It's all divine. 
that's spiritual bypassing, that's escapism. That is not at all what's being said here, but that has to be thrown into the mix because it's a very common criticism of these types of views that can seem so almost naive from a Western point of view. I mean, what do you mean the world is basically good? Open your eyes, it's a, it's a crapshoot out there. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out into the mix largely because it's just on my table right now that you know, the longer this COVID thing takes place or goes on, um, especially with you know, the, the charge political situation. I mean, I don't need to tell you everything that's happening. It's just so incredibly easy. Um, and you see it with these news clips, all these people just losing it. Um, well, why don't we find it? Instead of losing it, let's find it. Let's find the goodness in, in everything because it's there. It's the nature of reality. And so this was the, the outrageous genius of, of the non-dual traditions proclaimed in this vocabulary with the brilliance of Trungpa Rinpoche that if we attend to the goodness in ourselves and others, then we evoke that sacred outlook, pure perception. Then we evoke that worldview and our world, instead of becoming smaller and more reified and concretized and hard, that same world, and this again, talk about perception as creation. That's why it ties back into that. You know, why not co-create this uh, a view that's, in, that's more in harmony with the way things actually are? And, and notice the, the correlative benefit for self and other, that you'll, be, you'll find yourself smiling a lot more. You, things become lighter. This is one of the inner renderings of enlightenment, more spacious, accommodating. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. And, and if someone like Joseph or Cassell or some of my long-term Shambhala people want to chime in around this, um, I believe in that in the Shambhala training processes that I have encountered, and again, I, I've been a student of this tradition for decades. In my humble estimation, the overt practice, not just the, the kind of tenet of basic goodness, but the practice of basic goodness, I think maybe could be emphasized a little bit more, that we really do have a choice and that we can actually look at the world through this, um, in, in a real way, it's a non-lens. I, I was gonna say it's a more correct lens, but in a certain ways, just removing lenses and seeing things the way they really are. And when you do that, then the world, then the natural goodness of, of the world actually um, becomes more and more available to you. And so why not? You know, we have this choice. Prisoners don't have a choice. We have a choice on how we relate to things. And reality is what we attend to. Why not attend to that which is actually more in harmony with reality, the purity of it, the goodness of it. And, you know, it'd be really interesting to see, we could, we could actually do this as a collective practice between now and next week is, is maybe, you know, I actually wrote this on the fridge. I have all these little sticky notes. I write sticky notes everywhere. And so I have these little lessons of the day, lessons of the week. And so this week it's like practice basic goodness. And so maybe as a collective experience, we could try that together for the next week. Um, make basic goodness your practice for the week and just see what that does for you. Let's see what it does for your world. And uh, it'd be, I think, delightful to return and, and talk about this in a little bit more um, detail next week and the following weeks, because as I've been playing with this over the last couple of days, um, such an amazingly simple tenet, and it's, it's so interesting really to me, reality is really simple. Confusion is complicated. Reality itself is really simple. 
And so don't let the simplicity um, of this contemplation practice belie its profundity. You know, practice basic goodness and, and just maybe as an open question, power of an open question, open inquiry. Let's get back to it next week and just see what it does to us. Does it in fact change the way we see things? Does it in fact change reality? Because we're tending to it in a, in a different way, in a more elevated way. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out for starters because um, I just find it super practical. You know, this view is not philosophical or theoretical. It may appear that way, especially for Westerners, um, only because it isn't our direct experience yet. But as we actually start to open the aperture of our awareness, open the aperture of our heart-mind, we start to see the world is actually this way. And so it has tremendous applicability and, and, and kind of transformative power. So that's my riff for today. I went on a little bit longer than normal, but um, I got a little bit inspired about this basic goodness practice. And so if Joseph's out there, Cassell's out there, anybody you know, that wants to throw anything question-wise or offering-wise along, along these lines, I'm most welcome to do so. But this is where we open it up and talk about whatever you want. Well, I don't see uh, Joseph or Cassell have their hand raised yet, but okay. I, could, I could start off with some written questions. Perfect. Works. Perfect. Great. All right. This first written question was from Anisha. Can you give some examples for how we might take a childlike approach to nighttime practice? Yeah. Yes. Um, childlike versus childish. So for me, what comes to mind is one of the central meditative aphorisms, maxims, adages that you've probably heard me say many times, not too tight, not too loose. Um, and a childlike attitude here would be one, really one of playfulness and delight that we want to work with the nocturnal mind, the subtle mind in, in, a, in a more lighthearted, playful way. Um, and I believe this is really of quite importance because so much of, of deep spiritual practice, excuse me, in my opinion, can get unnecessarily um, kind of solemn, serious. And again, there, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But if we're too serious, too solemn, too adult, <laughs> too adult, that's one extreme. You know, we're trying too hard, we're too achievement oriented, we're too success oriented, you know, all the metrics that we bring about with so-called adult views in the kind of negative pejorative sense. And so to me, a childlike way, I think is really important because there are, you know, one of the things that makes the nocturnal practices a little bit advanced is their subtle nature and also that there are metrics here. You know, in other words, you either have success with lucidity, with dream recall, with some of the stages, or you don't. And so that can be a little bit disheartening for people. Um, it's super encouraging when you have lucidity, when things start to increase, which eventually they will if you just stay with it. But it can be a little bit disheartening if you don't have success, so to speak. And so a childlike attitude is, is just a more playful one um, where this is what develops the constancy behind it, where you just relax a little bit. In fact, you relax a lot. Um, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but if you weren't listening, I think it's important. When I did Stephen LaBerge's training, he has these 
famous 10-day trainings in Hawaii. I, I attended a number of them, Kotat, a little bit. I think I shared this story with you. When I first did them, I was almost offended because, you know, we'd have like a three-hour block in the morning. And then the whole bloody afternoon was like nothing, open. We didn't get together again until like seven o'clock at night. And so we had this huge space in the middle of the day. And, and of course, me being adult and kind of type A, I got a little irritated. It's like, man, I'm paying, you know, good money. I want, I want, give me the goods here. And then I realized later what Stephen was doing is really quite, quite sensitive and quite beautiful where he was just creating, allowing so much space in this really luxurious environment that that type of spaciousness itself was conducive to success. So instead of like, you know, pounding it out eight, 10 hours a day, which is what I'm prone to do, that, that's my default too. I'm too adult. Stephen's approach really struck me, but it was really playful, as is Stephen. He's just a delight. He's just, as you know, those of you who have met him, he's just a kid. I mean, a, a genius kid. And so it's something like that, where we want to create a more spacious, open, playful relationship to this practice. Because yes, we need some effort, otherwise it's not a practice. But as Westerners, our tendency, I find, is to get too tight, too aggressive, too ambitious, too oriented towards success. And um, a more childlike, open, playful, enlightened approach, I think is really quite helpful because that's what, what will create the sense of constancy. You're gonna keep going if you don't tie yourself up too hard, too tight by trying to achieve too much. So that's what comes to mind. All right, sorry, we just got Zoom bombed again. So I had to disable the chat temporarily, but yeah. th it's still enabled for hosts. So people can still send questions or messages to me as needed. All right, let's go to the next writing question. It was from Kirsten. If our mind creates dimension depth after receiving light from the eyes, why do people with single vision lack depth perception? Well, it's because, the, because of the lack of binocular rivalry. They, you know, again, I'm not an ophthalmologist. I'm, I'm not a cognitive neuroscientist along these lines. So I cannot answer this question from, from a physiological or scientific point of view. I would suspect that this would probably readily access, um, I hate to say, with a simple Google search. <laughs> So this, this really is more in the realm of ophthalmology and, and uh, brain physiology and the like. So I don't really know, you know, I mean, when I close my, one of my eyes, if I'm understanding you, I, I, I mean, there is still a, a sense of depth. So this is something that's more for, for the scientists. And if there's somebody out there who is skilled in these arenas, this is a time to chime in. But, you know, this is a little bit above my pay grade. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, and uh, this is from Beatrice, um, and it's going back to the handshake practice. Mm -hmm. So, is Rinpoche's handshake practice that was referred to in uh, Hangout Fifteen was um, was that literal, a physical practice in the age of COVID about going into one's anxieties, or is it an older metaphorical practice? Well, it's definitely not literal. Um, it's metaphorical and it's not that old because Stegner Rinpoche, you know, who, who actually came up with this practice, this thought, the spirit of this, yes, this is an ancient, the, the spirit of this practice is ancient. The, the neologism, the term handshake practice 
that's Tsugyun Rinpoche's, and I think it's a beautiful one. And, and so what the practice is, of course, is you can read about it. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's in um, Open Heart, Open Mind. I'm not sure in which, which one of Rinpoche's books it's in, but he teaches quite a bit about it. And it's a really lovely intuitive notion that you, you just put a, um, you know, you welcome whatever arises. Um, you create an attitude of, of receptivity that allows you to um, shake hands with whatever comes up. Um, so you're just more open to it. You're more uh, able to work with it in, in a, a less contracted way. So I'm not sure where else I can go with this. You know, this, this is really the copyright, so to speak, of, of Tsukin Rinpoche, but the, ess the essence of it goes back really to the, to the kind of the guts of all the wisdom traditions as far as I know is that, you know, the way uh, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche talks about it in his terminology, is, it's his, you know, the welcome mat practice, the hosting practice, same thing, where you just, you want to create an environment with your being, with your heart and mind, that is able to host whatever arises. You put a welcome mat in front of your mind, but you also put an exit sign. There's also an exit door. So this doesn't mean the near enemy is you somehow welcome, indulge, acquiesce, towards whatever arises, no. It's just your ability to say yes. And this goes pretty deep, you know, because a large part of what the spiritual path is, is in fact learning how to say yes. It's like what, you know, again, the famous, another teacher, the famous words of Krishnamurti, remember the secret, his secret to happiness. I don't mind what happens. I don't mind what happens. I can accommodate this, I can host it. It doesn't mean you indulge it. It doesn't mean you gorge on it. It means you can say yes to it. And this includes, and this is where Tsugyu Rinpoche's practice really comes into play and ties into the reverse meditations in a big way, which is where you then learn, learn to handshake pain. You learn to handshake unwanted circumstance. You learn to establish a relationship to difficult situations. Um, and therefore, even doing that, even reaching your hand out in that capacity starts to transform the relationship, makes you more able to accommodate it, um, and then fundamentally transmute it, transform it. So something along those lines, it's a beautiful practice. He riffs on it a lot, and, and I love the way he, you know, this is one of the cool things about the, the meditation masters that have taken the trouble to learn the Western language, to learn Western culture, to learn what Western means, because this is real complete translation. And this is what I talk about with Chris Wallace, by the way, is that translation, literally, etymologically, the word, mean, the word means something like to bring over completely. And so the reason I throw this into the mix is that, yes, of course, it's tremendously important to translate these wisdom teachings liturgically, you know, linguistically, I should say, you know, literally putting the name into the, into the Western language. But I think just as important and actually even more so, and this is why the work of like Chris Wallace and, and translators that are also cultural translators and like Tsugyu Rinpoche and the other masters who come in, not only do they learn the language and translate from Tibetan to English, they learn the culture and then they translate culturally. And so when, when Rinpoche says something like handshake practice, we get it, or at least sooner or later we get it. And so um, both, he and his brother, Mingyur Rinpoche, Pondok Rinpoche, all these Western, um, these Tibetan masters that have taken on the Western way, I tip my hat to these people because they've taken the trouble to learn complete 
translation, not just linguistic, but cultural. And that's why we fall in love with these people, right? Because they, they take the trouble to learn our silly ways. They take the trouble and then, and then they speak in our language and, and, and we get it. So anyway, that's what comes to mind around that. All right. Um, this is a chat question from Barbara. Can you give some examples of practicing basic goodness without going into the Pollyanna stance? Yeah, some examples. Yeah, so for sure. Okay, um, easy. You know, I, I have, as everybody does, <laughs> you know, I have some, I'll be very specific. I have, I, I live in a wonderful neighborhood and I, I, most of my, a large part of my life, I've lived in the mountains and somewhat more kind of reclusive hermit type style things. And I'm actually in a community um, a neighborhood that has a sense of community. I, I'm almost, until I go back to childhood, have never had this kind of sense of community. And so the reason I mention this is I'm, I'm always walking my dog and I'm always running into these people and they're, and they're really amazing. Um, but I have noticed personally over the last couple of months that they, they have become a little bit less amazing. <laughs> Where is I find it's so interesting. You're like, I'll come out one day. They're definitely a little bit less amazing than they were before the COVID thing, right? So I come out there and the same person who, I mean, it's really, it's just, a, you know, they're just their thing, right? They're just this person. I don't really know them. Uh, you know, I'm finding myself coming out there and I'm just plastering them, right? These poor people. I'm just plastering them with my negativity, with my imputations, with my, <laughs> with my, I'm looking for the bad, like, why, why is this person this way? Why do they always have to do this? And so for me, it's like, okay, now I go outside and I go, okay, you know, as I take this walk, I, when I see X or whatever, and I see their dog or whatever, I'm going to pause and I'm, I'm going to look at them and say, where's the goodness in this person? You know, look at, look at the smile, look at, look at whatever. Let me um, focus my lens on um, something that's a little bit more real, a little bit stripped away from my usual negative projections. And so, you know, on one level, here's another way to say this. There's so many examples here. There's another way to work with this. Um, and I've, I picked this up from Ken Wilber, David Loy, a bunch of other really sensitive thinkers talking about the power of projection. That um, whenever this, the maxim, this is my summary, the maxim is that whenever something affects you, in, in this case, particular adversely affects you. This is a really powerful thing. You can put this on your fridge or actually tattoo it on your forehead. Whenever something affects you more than it informs you, you're probably dealing with a projection. And so that maxim alone is really humbling and revelatory because I'm affected all the time um, adversely. And so now when I feel that, it's okay, what am I projecting? Why, why am I so adversely affected? Um, and so what this does is then it allows me to take more responsibility. So, you know, I think, does that help? You know, it's like whenever anything tweaks you, whenever anything irritates you, maybe just pause, take ownership of that, feel that contraction, and then see if you can find the goodness. One, another way to do this, this is a little bit more elaborate, but it's an important one, is to, um, and I can't remember if I made this up or, I, or I, if I stole this from somebody. Remember, plagiarism is the highest form of flattery. Story their existence. Story their existence. And by this, what I mean is that, you know, how would you be if you were born in that person's shoes? How would you have turned out 
if you were experiencing a life that you, you know, you fundamentally don't really know what this other person has gone through, you have no idea. And so when someone turns out to be just a real jerk, what made them so jerky? What are the causes and conditions that created this being? And, and ask yourself, you know, if I, could I have done any better? So this is a maxim, story their existence. What, what are the factors, the confluence of factors that, that may have co-conspired to bring about this person and the way they're acting? Could I have done any better? And when you do that and you start to see, you know, first of all, I find it reveals to me how incredibly privileged I have been, you know, how almost elite my life has been. And sometimes I'm not so good way, you know, elite in the pejorative sense. And, and so that's one way I work with it, you know, empathy, put yourselves in their shoes, um, put yourselves in their lives, story yourself in their world. And then maybe, you know, maybe you can start to communicate, you know, this, this, there's so many ramifications here, but if you do that, then if you're dealing with somebody who has a completely antithetical political view, is culturally, religiously, politically, whatever, just has a completely different way of seeing things, you know, you might ask yourself, how would I be if I lived in their reality and was raised under these circumstances with fill in the blank, abusive parents? I mean, you get the picture. Would I have been any better? Um, so something like that. And then what it does to me, it, it, it empowers, I shouldn't say empowers, it humbles me. It, it helps me take ownership of my imputations and projections. And then it actually allows me to relax. And, and, and I find myself when I do this practice, I actually find myself smiling a lot more. You know, I find myself, you know, the world is really pretty good. Um, so something like that. Correct. And I saw that um, the Facebook live event for the Dreams of Light book launch was just um, published. So I put that link in the, oh, great. In the chat here. So if anyone wants to check that out. Awesome. All right, uh, how about one more? chat question and then we'll go to the live questions. Okay. Cool, and this is from Florian. Uh, what are some other traps the new age movement falls into other than, for example, confusing creating versus co-creating the world? Yeah, I mean, who am I to criticize, right? Um, even though I'm really good at it. <laughs> who am I to criticize? Well, uh, I mean, on one level, yeah, really, who am I to say anything about, you know, the new age? I mean, one, my, my start in this whole spiritual business arose from the new age. Um, it, you know, there's some really, again, basically, if you look at the goodness there, there are lots of really remarkable things with the new age. I mean, I actually, I didn't get into spirituality even pre-new age. This is no kidding. I got into the whole spiritual business with David Carradine and that really cheesy, you know, thing. Uh, remember that series called Kung Fu? <laughs> it's going to date me, right? Kung Fu. Remember that whole series? David Carradine would like, you know, be this total big spiritual grasshopper. And then at the end, he just beat the crap out of everybody. It was, it was like the perfect combination. And I say that because that's what got me interested in meditation. Kung Fu, for goodness sake. And so the spirit, the new age thing has a lot to offer. Um, some of the limitations, again, who am I to say it, but since you asked, some of the limitations perhaps is this, I think, slightly wrong view that spirituality is about feeling good. 
I think this is a major trap in, in, in so-called new age schools. It, it, it's basically, it's a, you know, spirituality is a self-improvement project. Spirituality is all about feeling good. Well, provisionally, yes, but not in, in, in actuality. Um, if you expand the notion of feeling good to feeling basically good, then for sure. But if you're just trying to feel good with your meditation, chill out in your spa at, at I'm not going to mention the resorts, but you get the idea. Go to your little elite spiritual hot tub. That's all. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if you just hang out in a hot tub, you're eventually going to drown. You're going to drown in comfort. And so one of the shadow elements I see um, in the, the kind of classic new age thing is their emphasis on feeling good, which is really just, in, in many ways, it just can be an extension of ego's comfort plan. And this, this can get really, really tricky, um, where you, you start to having all these delicious spiritual experiences. And that's all, again, nothing inherently wrong with that. Unless what? Unless you get attached to that, unless you want more of that, unless that becomes your new metric. Then what do you do when you grow old, when you get sick, when you're dying? Where's your spirituality then? Where, where's your feel-good spirituality when reality doesn't feel so good? Um, and so maybe I'll leave it at that. Um, that. But that's a big one in my opinion, that you know, if, if you think the spiritual practice is just about feeling good, uh, you're going to be disappointed. It's not about feeling good unless you're talking about basic goodness. It's about getting real at least as far as I can tell. And getting real includes the so-called bad as much as the good. Um, and so what we want to do is open, again, our heart minds to the point where really at, at the fruitional levels as I've come to see it, and, and this is also echoed by the wisdom traditions, there's no preference for the good or the bad. There's no preference for samsara or nirvana. Everything has what they call the quality of one taste. Um, so maybe I'll leave it at that for now. I mean, the New Age is fantastic. It, it, it's a, a wonderful kind of cashment. It's a wonderful introduction in my estimation. But um, there are some limitations. You know, every tradition has its limitations. Even the wisdom traditions, you know, Buddhism has its limitations. Everything has its limitations. Nobody has a patent on every aspect of truth. They just don't. And so it, the question is, what, what are we not saying? You know, I don't see what I don't see. That's the definition of a blind spot. And so um, easy to look out and criticize others, but then the question is, okay, what am, I, what am I not seeing? Where am I blind? And this is where teachers and community and other people that can come back to you, slap you on the side head and say, dude, you know, hey, wake up. Um, this is where that kind of feedback is important. So it's pretty easy to criticize others, but I think just as importantly, not just as importantly, I think what's more important is to um, look at our own blind spots. What are we not seeing? Where are we blind? Where, 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 are, where does our spirituality get us stuck? And I'm super interested in that sort of thing. You know, what Socrates was as well, the Buddha was, you know, uh, question your answers. Questioning your answers is, is more important than answering questions. Um, so something like that. Thanks. All right, um, let's go to the audio. And first up will be Debbie. Hi, Andrew, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Hi. I'm good, thank you. Basically good? <laughs> yeah, basically good. Yeah, I, um, I have a, 
I'd like some feedback. Um, Historically, throughout my life, my dream life has been very technicolor, very vivid. About a month ago, I started getting dreams that were translucent and sort of in gray and white for a couple of weeks. And uh, it was like I was getting a lot of teachings from teachers. I would wake up, I'd go back to sleep, it would continue. So this went on for a couple of weeks. And then slowly it started getting, the colors started coming back, but it remained translucent. And slowly over the last week, it's starting to get more opaque again. So that's very unusual. I've never had anything happen like that before. Okay, so t- tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you say translucent and opaque, because that's a little opaque to me. <laughs> <laughs> translucent, like like um, like looking at ghostly images. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, it was, and at first there was, it was just in shades of gray, not even black, not a lot of contrast. So, so just so I understand what you're saying. So what you were uh, seeing in your dreams felt even a little bit more illusory. Is that what you're saying? That you could actually almost see through what was happening in I, the landscape? Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it, what, was, what was arising was arising in a more kind of porous, um, see-through type of thing. In other words, it was there, but it, it wasn't quite as, as, as crisp and real as it had been prior. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it felt very profound because I yeah. was getting a lot of heavy teachings, spiritual teachings. Well, it's interesting to me because what comes to mind there is perhaps that is the main teaching, that um, in conjunction with literally receiving teachings, which I'd be curious to see how exactly those were coming in for you, perhaps what you're sharing is itself one of the most foundational teachings itself. And that is that um, when you look at things more properly, and this is what Mingyur Rinpoche says so beautifully about the importance of dreams. And in fact, I'm like these, I'm like these cheap, tacky salesmen, right? <laughs> well, oh, what a surprise. I just happen to have it right here. <laughs> That's what I write about in this book, um, which is all about you know, this sort of thing where Mingyur Rinpoche, and I quote him in, in the book, where he says, you know, uh, the, whole, the whole book, by the way, is about emptiness. And, what he says is that, that emptiness, uh, waking reality is a really tough schoolroom for emptiness. He said the dream arena is an easier classroom for emptiness. And so in other words, it's actually easier to see the empty nature of appearance in the dream. And so what I am intuiting from what you're saying is that part of what was happening in addition to what seems to be like literal teachings that you're getting, it seems to me the infrastructure teaching itself was a glimpse of the translucent malleable empty nature of appearance altogether and that, that this all comes down to this you know seminal central axis certainly in the buddhist tradition of the teachings on emptiness that when you see things in, in an, an empty way again that's what the whole book is about what does that really mean it's not a dismissive nihilistic thing it just means that things appear but they're they're much less solid they're much less reified even within the dream so like you had a dream that had a kind of a particular appearance, almost you could say ontological status prior to this. And so you enter this phase where even that appears like, whoa, even the dream now appears more dreamlike. And so to me, that's what I'm deriving from what you're saying, is that it seems to be a transmission of emptiness altogether. And then, okay, well, what do you do with it? Well, you know, in a bi-directional way, perhaps you can take that insight, transform it to outside, bring it with you during the day, and perhaps hey, well, how is this any different from that? You know, maybe I can start to see that this is more translucent. This is emptier. This is more illusory. 
So that's what comes to mind, something along those lines? Yeah, it does seem to correlate with the fact that I've had an awakening in my daily life where I'm accessing the view and maintaining a certain degree of stabilization. That's fantastic. Beautiful. That even makes more sense to me then because, again, you know, different um, kind of manifestations of mind, same underlying consciousness. And so that makes total sense to me that you would have, you know, dream yoga, the measure of the past, a path, that you would have some metric, so to speak. You would have some nocturnal manifestation of this kind of diurnal insight. That makes total sense to me. So now that you say that, that even more kind of affirms what I'm thinking along these lines. And basically it's just cool. I mean, that's awesome. Good for you. Yeah. And then what do you do with that? Well, of course you can use that as a kind of transmission and then you just let it go. Right. You just let it go. Cause the more you let go, the more, what do they say? The more you let go, the more you let God. <laughs> I like that. The more you let good. Well, there you go. The more you let go, then the more this will mature in whatever way it's going to mature. I don't know what that way will be but it will just continue to do whatever it does as a path quality, as long as you don't grasp after it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so is that helpful, something like that? It does, perfectly, thank yeah. you. Terrific, nice to see you. Thanks for the question. All right, and next with the audio will be Judith. Judith, her voice changed. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> yes. Andrew, I'm reading this book, um, Luminous Emptiness. Oh, I love Francesca. She's one of my dearest friends. We, we've been in recent uh, contact. I've been trying to get her as an interview guest, um, but she's kindly continually, even though she's a dear friend, refusing. So it's a bummer. It's a brilliant book. It's yeah, it's really helpful. And I came across that bit where it says, may the elements of space not rise up as enemies. May I see the realm of the blue Buddha? And, and so it goes on. The supplemental verses, right. And for some reason, I feel very excited by that. And I realized that in the temple, each side of the temple, all, all these Buddhas of different colors, but that's what that is referring to, I think. It's in these cubby holes, all these different Buddhas of these colors. You know? And I wondered if you had any kind of help with meditating on that because it's kind of like you have to you have to kind of unlock your imagination right it's like so many of the other kind of deities in in buddhism you have to kind of yeah you have to kind of um because you make it up yourself i mean my experience probably isn't the same as anybody else's it's not a uniform experience right Oh, so, so you're, you're pinging out a couple of things here. I need some clarification. Um, when you say experiences, are you talking about experiences of the deity, experiences of yeah, the when you try, world? When you try to, you know, if, you, if you're reading through that and you're trying to use it, think of it in meditation or, you know, imagine the blue Buddha. Sure. You know, and not, yeah. So, you know, my experience of that would be different from anybody else's probably well yes and no yes and no um because the deity you know the archetypal expression of the deity um and so the deity itself boy this is a big topic and by the way if you haven't listened to it yet judith um i talked quite a bit about deity principle in my interview with ben williams from a shiva tantra point of view it's I th he says some really interesting things about the deity principle is that on your website yes it's on it's on the nightclub site ben okay. williams um 
So DAT principle, oh my gosh, I mean, we're, you're talking about some pretty wonderful, deeply profound things here. Um, you know, the DAT, uh, <laughs> the DAT represents a, a quality of the awakened mind, heart. It represents a quality of reality. In, in kind of anthropocentric, anthropomorphic form, simply as a way to establish a relationship to something that's fundamentally formless, right? And so, as I mentioned on a number of different occasions, occasions the deity principle operates on a number of different levels. On the most foundational level, it is, it is inviting you to see the world um, the way the deity sees the world. Um, and so, you have to guide me a little bit here, Judith, because the, the topic is so big. There's so many alleys or, or, or avenues that I can take this with. Direct me a little bit more in terms of what specifically you want me to go after here, because deity principle in, in Tibetan Buddhism alone, it constitutes about one third of Tibetan tantric practice. So th this is a really, really big topic. Um, and so just for the purposes of time, maybe direct me a little bit more. Where yeah, you're I think I'm, I'm beginning to realize that, you know, as I'm, I'm just beginning to realize it. And so I don't know how to begin, or I don't know how to, um, get that concept of this, let's say, for instance, the blue Buddha of the earth, you know, what does that feel like? Right. Well, the only way you're really going to get it, Judith, is, is doing the practices. And so I'm not sure where you are on the spiritual path and what you do, but the way to really get the deity thing is to do deity yoga. It's the only way, actually. I mean, you can read about it. There's tons of books on this, by the way. Um, Generation and Completion, a beautiful book by Sarah Harding. I mean, there's a ton of stuff on this. Um, Reggie Ray writes about it beautifully in his book, Secrets of the Raja World. There's a lot of literature on, what's, you know, if you want to look it up, it's called uh, Creation Stage Practice, Generation Stage Practice, Yidam De uh, or, or Deity Yoga. Um, you know, there's lots of different terms for this. But the only way to really get a sense, and this is where I think you want to go with it, is to actually do the practice. And there are, even there, there are different ways to do it. There's the tantric ways, which is where you need all the bells and whistles and the abhishekas and the wongs. But you can also do what's called sutra-level sutra deity practice, like Tara. This doesn't in any way diminish Tara. Um, it's just a, a more entry-level type practice. And so what I might recommend for you, because this is the only way you're really gonna get it, is to try to search out, and people like Lama Paulin, um, who has the Sukha City Foundation. There are, there are a number of teachers who do um, sutra level deity practices. And Lama Paulden is, is one of the ones who does it with some regularity. She's a real expert on, on you know, the, the Tara family practices. I would strongly recommend you explore those because you can read about the stuff till you're blue in the face, pardon the pun. And maybe someday you will be blue in the face. <laughs> you can read about this till you're blue in the body, like the blue Buddha. Yeah. But the only way you're really going to grok this, feel it, is when you actually do the practice. Well, and, then, well, and then let me say one thing and then I'll bring it back to you. And the reason this ties in so fantastically to things like dream yoga is that, whoa, baby, you start doing this practice during the day, you transform this into a nighttime practice and it really comes to life. Because then in the dream, you're not just faking it. You're not just visualizing yourself as the blue Buddha during the day. You do that in the dream state, you become the blue Buddha because mind becomes reality in the dream. So I throw that into the mix because this is one of the intermediate levels of actual dream yoga practice that's super powerful. 
where you do the practice during the day, then you get lucid at night, you do it at night, whoa, all of a sudden it really, um, almost literally comes to life. I think what I'm concerned about is say, for instance, when I do the Vajrasattva practice, is that I'm making it too much mine. M-I-N-E or M-I-N-D? Mine, M-I-N-E. My particular, you know, because I imagine uh, Vajrasattva over the world, um, getting rid of all the obscuration of the world. I mean, I'm beginning to enjoy it. I mean, I'm beginning to enjoy when when I can imagine the deity arriving and it's beginning to be pleasant. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, when you say making it mine, there's two ways of looking at that. One level of making it mine, making it my own, that's a real translation thing, right? I mean, now you're translating it. That's great. I mean, making the practice your own, if that's what you mean by making it mine, that's fantastic. If what you mean by making it mine is somehow it becomes a little bit appropriated, egoic, then of course you might want to look at that. But, but I think you're talking about the former. And if you're talking about the former, that's, that's great. Okay. Make it your own. Yeah. You know, make, make the deity that's your okay. own. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Totally. Not only is it okay, I think it's, yeah. that's when the practice really comes alive. Because, you know, these, te- these practices are, they're heuristics. They're teaching tools. They're fingers pointing to the moon. Don't mistake the finger for the moon. Don't mistake the map for the territory. So we use these practices as, as training wheels, as templates, that eventually when you do it, the, the training wheels fall off. The, the, the template falls away and you become the deity. What that means obviously is, is a little bit beyond what we can talk about here. But um, yeah, a large part of it is like what you're saying, you, you do wanna make it your own. You and, and I find that my heart gets involved. Yeah, that. exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's beautifully said because you know, yeah. visualization practice is just, it's not just a cognitive cerebral event, it's a somatic event. It's feeling, feelingization, feelingization. It's, it's as much a, a somatic event as it is a so-called cognitive event. That's super important Great. because otherwise it's just this mental cerebral gymnastics. Yeah. You know, that has a very limited bandwidth. You want to feel this because the deity, you know, abides at the level of the subtle body, right? So when you're talking about the deity, you're working with external visualizations, seemingly external things as a way to invoke the internal until you see there's no difference. And then that also then works with the subtle body, which actually when the subtle body is fully actualized and and kind of mature, it becomes the body of the deity. See? So there's there's a whole lot to say here, but yeah, maybe that gives you something to go with. Yeah, it does. Yeah, thanks. A bit technical, but good. Um, Next with the audio will be Bridge. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. No, that's fine. Uh, Hello. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, hi, hi, Andrew. Uh, How are you? Really, I'm well, I'm well. Really enjoyed all your courses in Boston. <laughs> like this are, are, you, are, you still, are you still in the Boston area? Yes, I am. Yeah. Oh, so nice to see you. Do you, do you, do you ever see Barnes or you hang out with that, with that group anymore? I, I hang out with some people. Um, nice. I think he went off for his retreat, right? So I don't know. But he's, he's, I, I think he's back. Anyway, so nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah delightful. How, yeah. Okay, how can I help you today, my friend? Well, firstly, I also remember Kung Fu. So, you know, I'm not that reference. <laughs> so, um, so I have a question and a comment. Um, 
to the question has to do with the creating reality preamble in the very beginning okay. uh, that we create our experience. So I know you're talking about the brain and there's a lot of literature on that and the senses and how the brain affects that. Uh, and, but you know, uh, I was reflecting on the question of the brain and the mind, let's say in the Buddhist framework, because in dreams you have sensory experiences, right? Without presumably like a direct sort of channel of information through the senses. Similarly in the Bardo state, right. one has, and then people talk about the outer body experiences and Swami Paramahansa Yogananda talked about the 360 view and all that. So is there not like a sense of a transcendental vision or yes. senses beyond yes. the organs, right? So Yes, absolutely, well said, well said, absolutely. Yeah, you do not need physicality to have sensual experience. You know, in fact, let me just throw this into the mix. Um, when I was first really getting into lucid dreaming, dream yoga, I, I, I actually created a set of little experiments for myself in the dream. You know, because most of the dreams just, it's so interesting in, in the same way that, you know, at least one third, at least one third, if not more, some people say half, of, of brain processing power is devoted towards vision, it's no surprise that, that sight-centricity vision dominates even in the dream state. I mean, we dream visually, but blind people don't. And so what I did was I, decades ago, I actually set myself a, a series of experiments. Can I smell in the dream? Can I taste in the dream? Can I feel in the dream? And so I remember very clearly, I would, I would be in a lucid dream and I go, okay, I want to see if I can feel. And I, I, I conjured up a rose bush and I went up and I stuck my dream thumb into a dream thorn and I felt dream pain. And so it's exactly what you say. We're not limited to physical sense faculties. And the dream can typify that, the Bardo experience, OBEs, NDEs, they all can typify that. And the implications behind that, if you really start to settle into it, are pretty profound. But I just wanted to throw that into the mix. So, cool. Right, right. So thank you for that. Uh, in fact, the Sufis say that we are so attached to our senses, mesmerized by them, that we uh, sort of don't even pay attention to other modes of knowing, you know, exactly. or something, right? Um, Absolutely. So then the quick comment about the practical thing you mentioned about the thank you for the humanity of bringing about the irritability in this era of COVID and all that, so thank you. Um, so what the quick comment about that is that um, I've noticed that um, before I get to the irritable stage or, you know, and um, I noticed that I, I, I basically missed some signs in my body, you know, tension and things like that. And that's, people call it somatic inhabiting and all those practices. So actually for someone like me who is very intellectual and abide in my head and all that, that has been a great grounding thing, you know, always to try to catch those early signs when you're tensing up. So by the time it ratchets up and breaks through and then you're irritable, it's a little bit late. And of course you can catch it then and Fantastic. make amends and all that. So Fantastic. I, I could not agree more with you. <clears throat> and it's similar because, you know, we have the same, same kind of intellectual disposition. Same for me. You might want to look, my friend, if you're interested in really exploring this in more depth, look at the work of Reggie Ray. Um, he just published a book. I haven't read this one yet. This is the third one in the series. It's called Somatic Descent. But he's written um, a PhD, um, uh, really a good friend and a really great scholar practitioner. 
And for the last 10 years or so, using the tenets of the inner yogas, he's written really beautifully about the somatic journey, the, the, the principles of waking down. And I, I like what he says because it's intellectually, uh, it's not academic, but it's rigorous. And he really talks a lot about exactly the importance of what you're referring to, you know, literally staying embodied um, and working with the soma in this way. So I, I couldn't agree with you more that we, that we miss these signs. And, and this is actually what I'm writing a book on this now. This is so important to me that if we pay very close attention to what brings about any level of irritability, you always find um, greater or lesser degrees of contraction. And so this contraction principle is monumental in my opinion. And, and so it's so big for me that I'm literally writing a whole book on it um, as a way to take some of these tenets and really bolt them into lived experience. Because this is something you can feel. I mean, you can, you can feel these contractions. And the principle itself goes so far down. It's like, it's like you know, turtles all the way down. It's contractions all the way down. I mean, the very, very fundamental sense of self is actually a product um, synonymous with contraction itself. And so when you touch into that, that's, that's actually no small thing. Then what it does is it allows you, okay, what is reality is what you attend to. Attend to the feelings in your body. Wake down. Stay with that. And to tie that into Judas thing, that's where you meet the deity. That's where the deity abides in that level of soma. And so therefore, you know, this is a way to conjoin what you're saying with her. You start to feel these things before it, you FedEx your conscious, you know, you FedEx the sensation into your head and you're off in some emotional upheaval. In a certain sense, you've lost it, but you can find it by capturing that experience, so to speak, holding it properly and then returning it to its basis in your body. And then actually by doing that, you will meet the deity in that sensation. And in fact, you don't just meet the deity, you become the deity. So this is a nice way to talk about what you're talking about in conjunction with Judas' um, question. So thanks for that offering. Yeah, thank, thanks for that connection. In fact, that's a whole new kind of body intelligence. And anyway, that's a different topic. But thank it's, you, Andrew, for your generosity and providing this sangha, this amazing sangha. It's so great. Everyone. I can't believe you. It's so nice to see you. And if you see any more of, of, the, of our friends from there, please send them my best. It's great to make the connection. I will. I will. Thank you. <laughs> All the best. Wonderful. All right, and uh, next with the audio will be Keenan. Keenan, Jesus, he's back. <laughs> One sec. Okay, there we go. Hi, Andrew, good to see you, thank nice you. Nice to see you, my friend, how are you? Very good, very good, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, okay. basically good. Basically, yeah, that's what I'm aiming for. Um, so yeah, I just uh, just wanted to share a couple of, couple of things. Um, what you were referring about the basic goodness reminded me of uh, Plato, uh, uh -huh. Plato's uh, divided line and his allegories to cave where he, in the di divided line, he kind of boils it down to the top level of Gnosis as the base basic goodness. And uh, that, that theme seems to continue among the Sufis as well, nice. where there are these uh, divine qualities that, that are responsible for creation. It makes sense, doesn't it, Keenan? I mean, just to throw this into the mix. I mean, according, yeah, thank you for bringing up the Plato thing. Um, this, is, this is, you know, nobody has a patent on this particular description of reality, right? Because, I mean, the, as far as I can tell, when you actually tune into reality, this is what you discover. 
And so therefore, why you, it would be surprising if you didn't have iterations of this discovery throughout all the great wisdom or philosophical traditions. So, but yeah, cool. What else? I think uh, we might have lost him. Oh, yeah, something must have happened because I don't see him anymore. All right, maybe he can come back. Yeah, so Kena, yeah. If you come back up, Kena, we'll 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 tune you back in. But you seem to have disappeared on us here. Oh, let's see. Oh no, he's there, but he's muted. One second. Okay, sorry about that. No, no, I think good. I got muted. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I guess the uh, uh, one question I had was about the theme of um, uh, non-contextual realism. Oh, right, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to kind of check with you as to what I understand. And, um, you know, when we, when we look at the uh, scientific arena, uh, we have what we call a subjective agreement, uh, where when you make a discovery you then you have peer review and uh, people agree with you and uh, you know once everybody agrees then it's kind of like a new law or a new discovery whatever and so it seems like objectivity is uh, substantiated by subjective agreement that's correct that's really important. interesting it's, it's right interesting it's it's consensual reality fundamentally right right and so so it seems that um you know at one level we have uh, collective subjectivity for replacing something external, as you were saying. And um, so what is really out there, you know, as you were saying about the moon, um, I don't really know is one, That's one right. thing. Would that That's be right. accurate to, to stay in that not knowing? Because in a way I could say is th there is no way to directly know it. Well, and it could be either of those or something else. That's, a, I mean, what a great set of questions, my friend. Well, first of all, um, this is the work of, you know, start with Kant, right? Immanuel Kant, I mean, noumena phenomena. So a, a little philosophical sidebar briefly with my friend here. So that was his um, great contribution and also great limitation that we that fundamentally um, the thing in itself cannot be known. Well, no, the thing in itself cannot be known cognitively uh, or intellectually. It cannot be known relatively. And so if that's what Kant is referring to, and I don't think he was, then, then that is correct. But this distinction is what you're looking for cannot be known in traditional epistemological ways. But this is something that can be known Gnostically. This is something that can be known experientially. And this is what separates Kant from the, the mystical traditions, because as elegant as his work was, and obviously monumental impact in Western philosophical, philosophical thought, it didn't really have a fundamental praxis. It, it, it didn't allow you to actually go below to um, actually become, you know, you, you can't know reality from the outside but you can do one better, you become it. And, and that's the great gift. You, you, can't, you, you, you cannot know this um, intellectually. You can't know fundamentally uh, through the kind of cerebral apparatus, but you can know it Gnostically. And this is what separates philosophy from spirituality, where you can go right. pretty far. And there's some very high degree, I mean, there's some really sophisticated philosophical thinkers, really, really sophisticated people but they only go so far with rare exception because they didn't have a praxis. They didn't have a practice. They got stuck at the level of hearing and contemplating at the edge of the diving board 
but they didn't know how to spring off the board into meditation. And so this is why I'm such a huge fan of the meditative contemplative traditions, because you can take these maps and they get extremely sophisticated and refined. I mean, some of these thinkers are amazing, but you can't think yourself beyond thought. It just doesn't work, as you know. So, yeah. you know, you can know this. In fact, that's the whole essence of the spiritual path. But it's a type of knowing that is non-dual. It's, in fact, again, here it is. <laughs> it's in this book. The transition from traditional epistemology to non-dual or tantric epistemology, where you, you can't know it from the outside, but you do one better, you actually become it. So I'm not, again, yes. a massive topic, but really good one. Yeah, thank you for that. I guess I'll just like to, uh checking a couple of things because I've been, I've been playing with this um, uh, for some time. And uh, it seems to me that this, this knowing, this gnosis comes the more one doesn't take positions. So right now there are these Beautiful. two positions. Beautiful. And so, so there is this not knowing that needs to be cuddled or held, cradled, yep. and that somehow delivers. And even after some, some things are shown, not, it seems like not much can be said in terms of building a, another structure or model. And my that's beautiful. That's you're you're so on it, my friend. That's absolutely right. Um, and this is why, again, I'll give you I'll give you some things where you can play with this. This is why the work mm -hmm. of Nagarjuna is so incredibly important. You know, yes. technical, but again, his his view of non-affirming negation is critically important. He was not at all about establishing a new view. His entire thing was showing the logical absurdities and contradictions that are inherent with any view. And so that's where you end up with what Dafrijan, Dalavananda, talked about is in fact divine ignorance, where you don't replace the views with another view. You basically annihilate all views. And then what are you left with? Nothing, no thing, emptiness. That's it. Well, what is that? You have to read my book. <laughs> I'm sorry, being a little bit of a smart aleck here. But what you're saying is absolutely spot on. And it's super important where, you know, the map is never the territory, no matter how subtle and refined the map is. Sooner or later, you have to destroy or let go. Or, you know, the analogy the Buddha said was you take the raft to bring you across the ocean, and then you don't carry the raft with you on the other side. You leave the raft on the shore. Um, so what you're saying is absolutely spot on. You don't replace it with a more subtle view. You just basically discover um, the inconsistencies, the ridiculous nature of all views. And then that, when you do that, then you're left with that. What that is literally cannot be said. And Wittgenstein said it best when he said, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must pass over in silence. And that's where you get. You get very, very far and then, you know, there's a, there's a, a sign that's, uh, so, you know, you, the intellect, um, the dualistic mind simply can't go there. It just cannot, you know, non, the dualistic mind cannot grok non-duality. So, yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Actually, you, you did mention Nagarjuna to me uh, a few weeks ago or a month ago, and I, I do have that book. Uh, yeah, what do you and, think? Uh, Not bad, huh? I'm, I'm going to be reading it. Since you said that I don't want to hog the time, but... Um, this just seems appropriate to, to kind of connect. Um, so we're already in non-duality. This is already beautiful. There is, there is no, um, 
So this seems like the dual experience that I'm having is already sacred because it is in that non-duality. And so my question is, or a thought that comes to me is that I feel that uh, life has to still be lived skillfully because I'm not here by accident. So because oftentimes, because my, my teaching background um, or where I've been learning is from the non-dual traditions, you know, Kashmir Shaivism and Advaita Vedanta. And I, I find an emphasis on there is nothing to be done. And which is true, which is true. But I feel like it's, sometimes it comes at the, uh, the price of um, that there is nothing to be done here in this realm. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so w- what I'm feeling is, okay, so if I'm already in non-duality, that's not an accident. So I must live my life skillfully. So in, in, in totally. that then comes, whether it's appreciation of beauty or art or music and whatever is then in the natural flow, uh, I do not know what the ultimate purpose is, but I gravitate towards that. So I must, must move on. Uh, yeah, there doesn't have to. Uh, somebody, yeah, so beautiful comments, my friend. First of all, there doesn't have to be purpose, right? There's just play. Right. Lila, Lopa, you know that. Um, and yes, I mean, you've hit on some amazing truths. There is only non-duality. Um, non-duality is lack of recognition of duality, hence recognition sutras. That's the highest form of liberation, you know, self-liberation, which is recognition. You're already there. We're already there. In fact, we can't be anything but there. That's all there ever is. We just don't believe it. We don't recognize it. Um, so on an absolute level, you, you know, I mean, we'll spend our entire lives until finally we'll come to the conclusion, OMG, it's been here all along, hiding in plain sight. So that part is true. Well, you have to juxtapose between kind of action and non-action, you know, with this view of the great perfection what they say in the in the um, the Wu Wei tradition of Taoism, you know, by doing nothing, nothing is left undone. That's a relative state. I mean, an absolute level statement. The near enemy of that is, like I mentioned earlier, you just go off to your little spiritual bypass thing and and you let the world go to hell. That's where the absolute view actually becomes problematic. It's abs- It's a, another form of extremism. And so then what you want to do, as far as I can tell, is you, you take that view to inform, that's your fundamental liberation. You take that, in your, that view to inform you in your activities, but then you get your ass off the cushion into the world, right? Which right now so desperately needs our help. You know, it's like, it's like uh, um, Suzuki Roshi once so beautifully said, you know, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened beings. There's only enlightened activity. And so understanding what enlightened activity is, is incredibly important and a massive topic that I, I love to spend a whole session on it with everybody. What exactly is enlightened activity? It's activity generated without intentionality other than intentionality for others. It's activity born without the superimposition of thought. There is this thing called non-dual activity that does not create karma. And that is the ultimate definition of skillful means, upaya. That's, that's where we really, that's the fruition. The fruition really isn't this absolute view that just actualizes things through meditation and then fundamentally action. Um, and so this, this makes the spiritual thing really gutsy and empowered. It puts teeth into the whole thing where you're not just running off doing your little escapist thing, maybe retreating provisionally as a way to reenter more authentically. 
But um, if, if one doesn't actually act and encounter and engage the world in that way, your awakening is incomplete because um, therefore, you know, compassion is not actually being expressed. So really terrific stuff, my friends. I think I'll let that go for thank now. You, so thank you. Just take one more, but really good stuff. Okay. Thank you so much, Andrew. Good to see you. Okay, Andy, maybe one more. And then for today, we probably ought to wrap it up. Yeah, perfect. Uh, well, next with the audio will be Lindsay. Hi, Andrew. Lindsay! Oh my gosh, all these people I haven't seen. Great yeah, to see hi. you. A pleasure to, yeah, I've been enjoying your talks. But um, yeah, I had a couple uh, questions. Sure. Um, on this practice of basic goodness, does that differ in any way from the traditional Buddhist tantric path of the, the Kagyu that we've been doing at Shambhala all this time of what I would call the a somatic practice of pure awareness. Is that what you're talking about or is it something different? Well, no, I think it's in, it, that it definitely includes it, Lindsay. What, what I'm trying to do with my little riff here today is maybe a more street level colloquial application because what you're saying, absolutely no different. I'm, I'm just simply trying to maybe translate it into more immediate um, common everyday experience, that sort of right. thing. So yeah. I agree with everything you're saying. Great. No, that's that's all I wanted to ask. That's that's good. Thank you. Well, that's it. Well, I did want to ask you if you might <laughs> dig in a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the reverse meditation on afflictions when they come up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so sure. you talk about like embracing them, right? And welcoming them and then there's the issue of feeling it when you wander from this awareness that one is training in right which is like why it's important to actually go into frightening places or just yes. dis, dis, um dislocating you yes anyway, can you talk about that on yeah. a, a somatic level yeah beautiful terrific um this ties in a little bit to what keenan was talking about where you know, fundamentally, the outrageous proclamation of basic goodness, the outrageous, outrageous proclamation of the non-doing. Sure. Uh, uh, coming in. Or, or call me back in a little while. I'm tied up with something. Okay. Sorry about that. Is that, is that a, a call from Padmasambhava? Um, you, should have, you should have taken it. So this ties into what Keenan was talking about, where, yeah, the, the, the extraordinary power of the reverse practices is it, they allow you, they give you a skill set, uh, a way to actually discover, also ties into Judith's question, to allow you to discover um, the deity in the most difficult of circumstances, the most unwanted of circumstances, to discover the non-dual basic goodness in the most unwanted circumstance. Because again, if, if this fundamental proclamation is true, that there is only always and forever just this divinity basic goodness whatever non-dual um, phraseology you want to append to it, where, where is that? How do you find that in really difficult states of mind? When you're really hurting, when you're really suffering from emotional upheaval, when, when you're not in your version of heaven, but in your version of hell, where's the heaven in that? How can you find the goodness in that? Well, one way is to expand your definition of basic goodness, right? It's not goodness in the conventional sense. This is a foundational goodness that is more at the level of isness, suchness, right? You know that. Yes. And so that's, that's the great gift of, of the reverse meditations 
um, which is, you know, the heart of, of so much of, of tantric practice, is going into those, you know, Chinagong practice, going into the, the most unwanted circumstances and finding the purity there. And, and, and the way to do that, also connected earlier, I think to what Keenan said, is again, this, this stunningly profound comment from the Vijadara in his introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's a mind-bendingly profound paragraph where he says, the absolute experience of duality is the experience of non-duality. That's an astounding statement. That, that the, the biggest issue is we don't experience duality completely. That, that paradoxically keeps the whole dualistic thing going. And so by going into the most dualistic, the, the most fractured and, ex, and, and challenging states and experiencing that fully, the complete experience of the dualistic um, display is in fact non-duality. That's astounding. It basically means that it's right here, again, you just have to go into it and relate to it fully. And when you do that, yeah, provisionally you go into it. Provisionally there's still a you, provisionally there's still that unwanted experience. It's still dualistic. But as you know, the further you go into it, the less there is of you and the less there is of, of, of other until you dissolve into whatever that is. And then what are you left with? Well, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? <laughs> the ineffable, emptiness, yeah. luminosity, the deity, whatever, whatever provisional term you want to put on that which cannot be labeled. So something like that, my friend, does that land with you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to my kind of experience, the, what it is that constitutes ego is located when you're in a situation that provokes you to lose your connection to the basic goodness. Yeah. And really, um, for the deep-seated stuff, you can't really get at it and, uh, unless you use this uh, kind of extreme reverse meditation method. That's yeah. That's where the rubber hits the road, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you learn, you gain the skill set of being able to recognize and feel when you lose it in the situation, and then feeling it, you're able to relax it and release it into this basic goodness. You're beautifully training. said. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. But easier said than done, right? That's why it's a oh, practice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's that's the really the path of joining. You know, and it's it's like when you start training in suchness continuously, then you're able to take what disturbs that as the path. Absolutely. And to get the skill set of that, you have to start by getting hold of the easy ones, the ones you can recognize when oh, you go into right. freak out inducing places. That's right. That's right. And then notice and feel when you lose it and release it right there into the natural nowness, the awareness that you're training in. Well said, oh child of noble family. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Andrew. Beautiful. Really good, really good, my friend. Great to see you. Thanks everybody, appreciate it. We try to limit this at an hour and a half. Um, so thanks again. We had some really deep diving questions today. I love it. Um, so hopefully not too much roadkill along those lines, but thank you everybody for joining me on week 18 of this, this ongoing ride into who knows where. So until now or next week, let's, let's try practicing a little basic goodness and see what happens. And then maybe we can talk about it again next week. So until then, wash your hands, keep your heart open and uh, take care of yourselves.